0: Hi, this is Laren Thomas of Knife Steel Nerds and you're listening to the Bladeology podcast. All right, we're going to jump into it like we do every week. Welcome to another episode of the Bladeology podcast. We're going to be recording episode 30 tonight. Uh, We do have our original host lineup, and we are on with a guest this week. This is the vocal representation of Jeremiah Burbank from PVK Vegas.
1: Nick Schuprin of NCC Knives. Elijah Isham of Isham Blade Works.
2: And this is Dave Brown from Masana Metal Design, or Blade Works, I should say.
0: Awesome. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Dave, thanks so much for coming on.
2: Hey, it's an honor. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. This is, uh, it's been, it's been a long time coming. I know we're all uh huge fans of your, of your work, follow you on Instagram. Yeah, um, likewise. what do you, uh, what do you want working on this week? T- tell us a little <laughs> bit of what's, what's on the, on the bench.
2: Um, well, I'm working on some wood right now, a couple of wood sayas for a Tonto and a Wakasashi combo matching and, uh, yeah i've got i'm sorry someone just came by um i'm working with uh dion damascus uh the crew it's a 440 ss 1095 damascus clad with a 1095 core and it's got a copper shim in it so yeah it's something different and interesting i haven't etched them yet so we'll see how they turn out
0: damn okay that's that sounds pretty that sounds pretty far out um i gotta say i don't i don't know I see a lot of, um, a lot of homones in your work. Um, Uh and Damascus seems to be a rarity. Is that just, just by choice or availability?
2: I've kind of been disappointed for the most part with the pattern consistency. I mean, um, I have got a couple of really nice billets from Chad Nichols, the XHP core, uh, low layer boomerang, which is really nice. But, um, yeah, I want to, I won't say any names or anything, but I don't know, uh, if they're selling all the good stuff to their friends and then, you know, since they don't know me, they're giving them, giving me the ones that are inconsistent, but you know, uh, inconsistent cores, uh, pattern variations, whatnot. Um, I am really impressed with Dama steel though. That stuff is really trick. Really easy to Family grind. Powdered steel, huh? Mm-hmm. I don't know how they make that stuff. How do they make that anyway?
1: Uh, they they just really made the process to where it's commercially repeatable.
2: Yeah, because the pattern is so tight and consistent. I, I have no idea how they do that.
1: Um, in my experience yeah. of forging, I'm assuming they're not overworking it. They're kind of get. They're probably using thin stock mm-hmm. uh, and layering it out higher instead of doing the folds or using some th- thick material and working it down. Which is what so I've usually done. Is I'll start thick and work it down. Uh huh so they sides rolls at thickness and I're just tapping it got it so
2: they probably roll it through a mill right rather than using a press or a hammer
1: uh, I'd assume so because when I've done this too I've used a rolling mill and not a rolling mill it's night and day <laughs> and for production i'd I, I see no reason to use a press yeah they probably start off so it's a consistent rollout to get a two thickness and then when they press it the, the steel isn't all deformed so they get got consistent
0: it. patterns
2: yeah whatever they're doing and they're doing it right.
0: You get what you pay so for, Dave, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about how we got here. Um, how how we got to this point in time. How did you get into making swords? I mean, you you make a variety of things, but but tell us tell us where you uh, where you came from, sort of say.
2: Well, um, I started out. I did a little bit of forging in high school. Um, I took an, a class called Ag Mechanics, and we had to forge steel there. And I actually got in trouble for making a shuriken in high school. Yep. Yeah. Um, I have about 20 years of experience in metalwork, um, blacksmithing. And I've only, let's. I think I just finished my third year working with blades. And as far as swords go, I just kind of hit the ground running with that. I think I'm, I made a katana was the second blade that I made. I've always been fascinated with like medieval weaponry and Japanese weaponry. Yeah.
1: Is everything you've been making knife wise, it's only been three years.
2: Yeah. I just finished my third year. Yeah. Pretty incredible.
1: Wow.
2: Well, thank you. Well, i yeah, you know, that's amazing. I'm still in my infancy. Uh, I'm kind of autodidactic. I just, I look at something and, and rather than researching it, I just kind of figure out how to do it and w- work intuitively. Like I'll just, uh, I don't make templates. I usually draw something out on the steel, cut it out, and then just kind of let the material guide me through it. But, you know, the process That's is a way to do it. Constantly evolving. Hell yeah. Yeah.
0: So you're totally self-taught then. Um, uh-huh. just, just figured out by doing it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I read stuff like... <laughs> Like when I come to Heat Treat, if, they're, if I'm using a steel that I've never used before, I'll look at the data sheet or I'll check forums you know, for Heat Treat recipes. But, uh, yeah, I'm not really into watching YouTube videos. I would like to learn from someone. I just don't. There's no one in the area. right? I don't know anyone else in the area that, well, when that makes nice so. so.
3: What's up? You're self-taught like that. You're, you're a true original. So that's oh. that's always good. Yeah, I'm trying. I mean, it, it's such, a, uh, such an amazing career.
2: It's constantly challenging. I mean, I always beat my head against the wall doing stuff, overdoing stuff, mostly learning from mistakes, which there are a lot of, for sure.
0: That's not a bad, bad way to do it, really. Yeah, it's kind of expensive, though. <laughs>
1: so do you forge for the most part, or are you doing stock removal? Mostly stock removal.
2: Um, actually the first knife that I made, uh, I forged, um, I just don't have an adequate forge setup right now to do it. Um, but it's something I really want to do. I want to start making some Damascus and, uh, playing around with that. But for now, just stock removal.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I was looking at. Cause, uh, what the work you're doing looks like it would be forged the work, but I I kind of mm-hmm. tell by the, the process and the finishing, I'm like, this looks like stock removal.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I need to get myself a surface grinder, like preferably something that does at least a 24-inch swing, which is a really big machine. Oh, damn. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah I'm, I'm looking for one now. I'm looking for an automatic 18-inch.
2: And you pretty much have to if you're forging bars out. If you're not rolling them out to get you know consistent thickness, you pretty much have to surface grind it or have it Blanchard ground and then come back and clean it up.
1: Yeah, so it's pretty much so I have two, I have three bills just sitting in my shop because I don't want to clean them up. Mm-hmm. Because uh but they're performance stainless, so it's like ugh, like I don't even have a surface grinder. So doing it yeah. on the grinder is, is a pain and then I go into my buddy's shop to go use a surface grinder. It's still like the right way to kind of do it is surface grind some of it and then mill some of it, but yeah, just haven't had the right tools sitting in my mill to mill it. And it's been sitting there for like two years now.
2: I really like the what is it called? brute to forge. We forge you know you forge the bullet out and grind it and leave like all of the forge marks in the flats mm-hmm. you'll you uh
3: forge in the the finger guard too
0: mm-hmm.
3: actually one yeah, of the first you? like custom knives i ever got was a uh, brute to forge like that i yeah. bought for myself yeah it's beautiful did you see that tonto that uh Marenko
2: made it's a couple months ago it's an integral it
1: in- kitchen knives.
2: Yeah, it was an integral Habaki and uh, the Suba. He forged it out and upset the outside of the Suba and the sepa is integral with the Suba. It's pretty amazing. It's on his Instagram page.
1: Yeah, yeah that guy's work. The difference, work is outstanding. Can you explain the differences in the Suba and the Seppa? Like, yeah. I know we're talking about, I've never said the words right, but like the people listening aren't going to be sure what that is.
2: The Suba would be uh I guess in European terms the guard. And the sepa is a spacer that goes between the habaki and the and the suba, which is the guard. And then oftentimes there's a, another sepa between the suba and what's called the suka, the handle. Often made with copper. It's kind of a spacer. Yeah. So the terminology. Yeah,
1: so for people trying to visualize it. If you ever look at a sword you'll you'll see uh as you mentioned, there's the, the the five layers. You got the handle, and then you would see like what would look like a copper shim that's smaller than the and then the guard itself. Yeah, and the guard, and then you would see another shim looking thing that's smaller than the guard, and then you yeah. see. Um, I always forget the the, the blade guard part. Oh, the habaki, the habaki,
2: yeah, yeah. That kind of fits if you do a. I, I think it's called a zero plunge, where you go, the bevel continues all the way to the back of the handle. So in order to mate the guard, so it doesn't slide forward onto the blade, you use a hibaki, and the hibaki also serves to fit into the saya.
1: Yeah, the last sword that I started was that was the plan was the grind went into the handle, and I was like, once I I'll put a guard on it, I'll put a hibaki on it, it'll cover, so I don't have to yeah. worry about the plunge. Uh, yeah, like I, I never got a chance to finish it because I stopped going with the hammer in, so it's it's been sitting there four years, not heat treated at this point. So, um,
2: Am I the only one where your Achilles heel is the plunge line
1: well, i I do folders, so for me I like plunge lines are where the money is for some guys yeah, yeah. Isn't the for me, the it's... most
3: hardest part of the whole process yeah, getting them even and getting the sweep consistent yeah it's like the yeah. the, the defining piece too it's like the piece to
1: resistance, yeah, taking it's the help a makers well like worth the salt, yeah, looking at the plunge. Mm-hmm. and the, the only reason I did on the sword is because I thought it's the right way to do it for the swords because most pictures on Katana isn't well I was in the mm-hmm. Wakizashi, Uh you don't really see a plunge so I, I was assuming yeah. it just ground inwards. that's what I did yeah yeah so but sure. it just seems like such a weak way to do it now Like it, it's sitting there I'm like this just seems weak
3: yeah. yeah, I prefer works. that kind of grind I don't know I always have like yeah. a pseudo style like take on it yeah yeah, there's you know, weakens it at all. No anything. ricasso. Mm-hmm. Well, I
2: would imagine that is the that is the weak point on a sword is right there with a with the blade ends the, and the ricasso starts.
1: Well, no, for me, I, I didn't. So when you're talking about grinding it all the way through, your handle is still full thickness. So I stepped it down as like a hidden tang. So there's a step uh-huh. inwards where my handle goes. So where, where the step is, and then the plunge goes, I mean, the grind goes past there. It, it just feels weird and thin, flimsy.
2: Yeah, exactly. This is very thin. Are you hollow grinding them?
1: No, it was, it was a it was a flat ground sword that I ground uh, horizontally on the wheel. Mm-hmm. Got uh, it. I don't remember how long it is. It's pretty much Wakazashi length. I was just, back then, I was going to a lot of hammer So I was like, uh-huh. oh, I'll grind in uh, a hammer and I'll heat treat it. And then, like I stopped going to hammer as soon as I ground it. So i just been yeah. sitting in my shop and I just call it the beater stick now.
2: You got to finish that thing.
1: It's 1095. I'm going to put a moment on it. It just sits there now. And I look yeah. at your work and I'm like, I got to make this up at some point. Oh, man. Yeah, you got to finish yeah. it up, dude. And it's, it's straight too. So it's not like a proper wakazashi. I was like, well, while he treating it. I was going to bend it back a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's pretty did ground.
2: You, but not fully. Did you, did you oil quench it? Or water? No,
1: it's not not hardened. That's uh, that's why it's been sitting around. It's because I stopped going hammering, so I no longer have a uh, heat treat oven big enough. uh, It's
2: hard. It's so strange how when you oil quench, even with uh, something close to water like parks, you'll it'll always bring the tip down. But you could do even an interrupted quench, like I've experimented with those, which I have a really high rate of failure, like eighty percent. You splash it in water for about a second to two seconds and then go straight into the parks even with that short splash in water it'll raise the tip pretty dramatically too
1: yeah i remember um i've seen it many times a person but mm-hmm. it, uh, the, when i saw it on i think mythbusters did an episode about that because they did a glass tank so you're able to watch yeah
2: it. yeah i think i saw that it was like a plexiglass tank
1: yeah it was a glass frame on the sides were clear and then you see you're able to watch it and they were they're studying the myth of it moving or something like that i don't remember yeah. exactly.
2: Yeah, it drops and then it comes up probably because the the edge is thinner. So it cools faster and it shrinks and then the spine cools and it brings the tip up. But with oil, I'm not sure the physics behind it, but with oil, it stays down. Like if you start out with a straight, a straight sword, if it's, if it's uh, ground on one side and you oil quench it, it will go down.
1: I know yeah, a water quench is a fast quench, and a quench mm-hmm. is a slow quench. So I'm assuming pretty much like you said, since it's fast. The, the, the thin part's cooling a lot slower, I mean, a lot yeah, faster. So, so that's already at temperature. The back is still soft,
2: uh-huh. so it's and pulling
1: in towards there. Yeah,
2: but with water, for some reason, it pulls it up. It's really violent, too. It's a water quench. It's a lot of stress on the steel.
3: Yeah, I was told by a maker that uh, water quenching, like those traditional, the way they did it back in the day, was like, Real hit or miss, and I mm-hmm. guess the blades were like super brittle. Like the the edges were like super like high Rockwell, I guess. I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've, I've cracked every time I've I've oil quenched my W two. I mean water quenched my W two. Yep. Even though it's supposed to be water quenched steel, I cracked every single blade I made and tried to water quench it. I always
2: end up with these little tiny micro fractures, so I don't even see it. Oftentimes, till I etch the blade, and it's always right at the kasaki. The tip, you'll see this little. It looks like a little like eyelash or something on the blade, and then you just tap it with a hammer, and it'll split because yeah, it it's cracked. a hard it, yeah, That, was,
1: that was pretty much what I was talking about. The forge at the hammering guys like once you heat treat it, it cools down, just tap it on the side of the anvil. Mm-hmm. If, if it sounds hollow or something's wrong, there's probably a, a fracture in there. If it sounds solid, you're you're good. Yeah. Or if you're sure that- every time I do that, and I find a micro crack, I haven't made done it many times. It was that was not what I made money on. That was just for fun. Or but, the dreaded, uh, it was the dreaded always,
2: uh, tink sound.
1: Yeah, it, it was always uh, like, oh, this the sucks. Of death. And then yeah. I'll do it for a few months, and like, i was do it again. And eventually I was like, okay, I'm just doing this in parks. Because I want yeah. that water quench, because everyone's going like, to get a crazier hormone because it's a lot more aggressive. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm never get to work.
2: Just the hormone looks totally different with water.
1: Is that what you're doing mainly for your hormones? Because you have one of the best hormones out there, in my oh, opinion. Thanks.
2: Thank you. I'm, I've just, I'm still experimenting just different clay thicknesses, uh, pattern. Um, I've done a couple of water. I've, I've only had two or three blades actually survive the uh, interrupted quench, but the hormones come
0: out really wild. Hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I like I wish so Dave, them. how did you, how did you get into like the sword making thing. That that's what kind of interests me. So like um, there are many swords out there, but you seem to be focused on obviously the the katana katanas, the wakasachis, the tantos, the sort of traditional Japanese stuff with a modern tactical style. If I can yeah. say that. Um where did where did that come from? I don't know. I just uh
2: I remember the first time I saw a katana, I just thought it was the sexiest thing I'd ever clapped eyes on. And uh it's, I like English swords, French swords, but I don't know, Japanese blades are just, I just like the way they look. And I should, but I don't actually know a lot of the history behind them. I should take a month out of my life and just sit down and, and watch documentaries and read books about it. Cause I kind of feel guilty. Like I should know more about the history and I don't. Just knife making in general, it's like paying homage to the, uh, to the craft by knowing the history.
0: Well, maybe in one way you've sort of brought your your twist to the to the whole thing with without knowing that, but able to you know adapt your style to to put a twist on modernism. Because I mean that the way the swords come out uh, and the way you grind them and assemble them. So I mean, I do su- see you do some wraps, but you do some some textured handles as well, which I think is really neat, and that's that sort of appeals to the more I think whatever tactical guys who yeah. want sort of a, a useful weapon.
2: Yeah, wood can be kind of a liability if you're dealing with the elements. Yeah, it's so beautiful and uh and killer, but man, it does split, crack if you're in environments that are wet or are going cold to hot to dry, you you're going to have some problems for sure.
0: Yeah. So, and and tell us a little bit about the so you you sort of you jumped into this this whole process of of katanas. I mean, no one's going to mm-hmm. No one's gonna second guess you on that. A katana is is a is a is a gorgeous curve with uh with just murder in mind. So I mean yeah. the first the first time you made one, you just sort of you grabbed a piece of steel, you figured out a curve, and you just grind it.
3: We're talking about a, a knife or a woman. Both. Um
2: yeah. The first one I made, I believe was kind of had a slight curve to it. I believe it was ten eighty four. And uh, I'm just doing hollow grinds. So um, it was a good learning experience. I mean, it's, I mean, it's really difficult to pull off a hollow grind that's 24 inches long. Do you prefer mm-hmm. uh, hollow to flat? I don't know if I prefer it. I just started out hollow grinding, and I haven't really gone to flat.
3: Yeah, you, you're...
2: Because you I know, know kat- works, yeah. katanas are flat ground. Well, mm-hmm. well, they use, like, draw files and files and and... and those sword polishers, man, it's a 10 year apprenticeship.
1: Just so the sword wonderful.
2: polishers. Oh, yeah, it's awesome.
1: I, I think the 3D Master was like 25 years before you could actually make the full katana.
2: Yeah, they take it seriously for sure.
1: Yeah. I remember exactly what I was really fond I'm really fond of the Japanese culture and like what you said, do you, like sit down for a month. Like I've done that. I just smoke some weed yeah. and sit down and watch a bunch of documentaries.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, like I said, I feel kind of guilty that I don't know more than I do.
0: So what about the okay? So you, you you briefed on something there, which is which is hollow grinding mm-hmm. something longer than four inches, which is m- pretty much already outside any modern knife maker's ability or scope of reality. Um, how, what did you just go to Harbor Freight, grab a grinder, and you're like, screw all this, I'm gonna I'm gonna hollow grind like a, a piece of steel that's longer than my arm.
2: The first grinder that I had, I actually made it. Um, I kind oh, of. Okay. Uh, I don't know if he still has it, but Travis Wertz, the uh, TW90, that grinder, if I remember mm-hmm. right, he had the, the plans for it online. And I kind of looked at the plans and, and made my own take on it. And while I was making it uh, on eBay, a Bader B3 popped up for 400 bucks and I bought it immediately. I think I paid more for shipping than I did for the grinder, but it was brand new. I, th- I believe it was like nice. a pawn shop. They probably didn't do the research. They didn't know what they had, but you know, it's like a $3,000 grinder. Um, And then I immediately immediately converted it to a variable speed motor. And the one that I built is variable speed. Um, The one I built does horizontal or vertical, but I pretty much have it dedicated as a horizontal grinder. And then Mm -hmm. I just use the Bader for all the vertical work. And typically I've been using a five inch wheel a lot for hollow grinds but I started out with an eight and a 10 and I worked with those for a while, but I've been going with thinner, uh, a narrower blade profile. So I, sw- I switched down to a five inch hollow or a five inch wheel.
0: Hmm. Like just that amount of grinding uh, in fertile. any kind of straightness is, is insane. Like that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you're never going to have
2: a blade that's 24 inches come out of heat treat straight. So yeah, there's a lot of correction that, I've actually had a lot of blades break when I'm correct, when I'm correcting them.
1: Yep. I, uh, when, yep. when Kish and I was, was the I could relate to, but uh, I used, I had jigs for it. Essentially after mm-hmm. hard thing, I had these jigs that clamp them in all so, sorts of ways while tempering. Hopefully yeah, I don't f- figure out their temper.
2: It's got like three pieces of round bar and you put it in the vise and kind of bend it mm-hmm. further. Yeah, well, further.
1: That's for, no, well that's for later. It was essentially a piece of U-channel. Uh, uh-huh. I, I saw this from sword guys. And they'd have a series of pretty much screws every inch, two inches, however you set it up. Got it. There was about yeah. 10 screws per side on this thing. And you could literally torque it, each side, each screw with to get to overcompensate where you have to. And mm-hmm. then throw the whole thing into temper. And yeah. if it tempers out, it'll hold that, that shape.
2: Just load the whole thing into the oven? hmm Got it.
1: You'll yeah. make a 24 inch piece of U channel and then you have the flat bottom as the rest and the left and right side of the channel, you just tap a bunch of holes in it to put mm-hmm. uh, a quarter, quarter 20 bolts in Got and it. then you could screw them in and out and just push out overcompensate I think, the warp.
2: I think Matt Gregory sent me a photo of one of those. I don't know if it was his or a friend of his. Yeah. It had like 10, it was about a, f- this one was about a foot long and I think it had about 10 bolts on each side.
1: Yeah, shit. Just, I just saw photos you guys do, and I saw them with some of the ends. Uh Just, mm-hmm. I just didn't remember. The inch it was overkill, but uh, I didn't. Yep. Like I said I just went off photos. So
2: better to have and not need than to need and not have, friend.
1: After what you describe, the device is what I do for my folder blades. So I have a little mm-hmm. attachment from my armor press, three round pins, and just kind of bend it and hope I don't crack a blade. Yeah, That's cold bending. Uh, cold bending it.
2: I basically after uh, temper. I just put it on the anvil and use a brass mallet and correct the deformation over the hardy hole. Mm. Just kind of lay it. I have this piece of glass. that's like three, three quarters of an inch thick and about 36 inches long. That's pretty much straight. It's got a little bit of variance in it, but I lay the blade on that and look at it and look where the deformations are and mark it with a silver pencil. Then take it over to the anvil, put it over the hardy hole and then tap it with the brass mallet. Just, you know as slowly as possible. Yeah.
1: Pretty much shot peening it, which I'm trying to learn yeah. how to do for the fuller blades.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where it breaks, though, sometimes.
1: If you're that's working nice.
2: with something like S30V, like I uh, I made a sword out of S30V, which was a mistake. It had a, a slight warp in it, and that stuff just does not move. It just breaks. Uh, I should, I should do my careful. research. Should have done my research, my research beforehand.
1: Well, that's most of the stainless steels. The stainless steels are that way. When, I, when I'm bending them, uh, I'll, I'll overextend them a shit ton of device, the and they'll just mm-hmm. keep bouncing back when they're hard. And then yeah. sometimes it's one point one point in Rockwell later, and it, the minuscule bend it bends it. And sometimes, like I said, I'll overextend it a crap ton, and then it'll bounce back. And seven, seven bends later, I'm still in the same spot. I'm like, shit. Yeah. Like was this have the it Have you
2: tried Z Tough?
1: Nah, uh, I, I mainly stick to the same steels: S30, ABL, uh-huh. nice V, CTS, XHP. Got it. Right by NJ Steel Baron. So for me, it's whatever they have is the easiest for me to get.
2: Yeah, I pretty much order everything from them or Alpha. But uh, New Jersey Steel Baron, they you know I need four, full full forty eight inch. And I think I sure it off of a four byte uh plate. But look if you're buying steel from Alpha, I don't think they have any bullets longer than 23 and a half for 24 inches.
1: Yeah, they, they get they get smaller. they get smaller stock. And they're, they're cutting at the other side of the grain. That's why they're getting 23 inch pieces instead of 36 or 48. Got it. Actually, I take that back. I've
2: ordered some uh, 3V from them that was a full 36 inches. Hmm. And that stuff now, is amazing.
1: I'm still a little bit surprised that you've only been doing this for about three years. So you said you have about 25 years or so of experience working with metals. So what were you doing before mm-hmm. this?
2: Doing uh, mostly architectural. I started out making sculpture and worked with furniture a little bit. I really like making gates. You know, just forging pieces and 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 putting them together, kind of working intuitively. But I started looking at knives. Um, I think it's about five years ago. I've always been fascinated with them, but I remember getting online one day and looking at some of the modern knives and I was just blown away by the, the bevels and, and the swedges. I, I, I didn't know how they did it. I mean, it was obvious that they were using belt grinders, but I, I just, it just blew me away. I'm like, man, I I need, I need to learn how to do this. So I sold off a lot of my equipment and uh, started buying the equipment to switch to knife making hmm yep
0: so you really you just like you checked it out online and then that that was that was your that was what hooked you
2: i think what put the hook in me was looking uh at mick strider's custom short swords and fixed blades that he makes you know the one-offs man those things just blew my mind Mm
3: -hmm. those are sick as hell
2: fuck yeah yeah i saw those and i'm like man i really need to learn how to do this I don't know if he does it anymore, but yeah, he's, he does some really crazy materials too. Like he's got one that was, uh, Damascus. I don't know what the other steel was, but he was using uh minigun barrels.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I like some really far out stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He's been really supportive. I don't know him in person, but, uh, online, you know, I followed him for a while and he just reached out to me one day and started giving me advice and yeah, he's been really cool and really supportive.
0: That's legit. I mean, he's a fellow Californian, so, you know, that's kind of. Yeah,
2: Yeah, he lives down in uh, L.A., I believe. Yep.
0: Yeah, that's neat. That's cool to have somebody like that just sort of reach out and and be very, very honest and forthcoming with knowledge.
2: Yeah, I think it was the hibaki. Like, he just sent me a message one day. It's like, hey, man, you need to start making hibakis. And then he, sh- he sent me a few photos <laughs> of what he was doing. He's like, yeah, it'll save you time in some ways, but it'll take more in others. And yeah. Hmm. Wow. Great guy. There's so, so many, so you, many makers out there that just blow my mind.
0: Oh yeah, you know, there, are, so there are a, a whole sea more. of them on, on social media. It's like it's crazy. Yeah. Well, there's you
2: know, I'll, there's good and the bad.
0: Yeah. As as with as with everything. So yeah, you started you started grinding. You got advice from mixed rider. I mean, you have uh, you know you have twenty six thousand followers on Instagram. That was you know.
1: I that was a build to
0: happened. to get there but but i mean that's that's crazy especially for somebody who's who's been doing this for for the amount of time that that you have
2: yeah this i mean that's whole social media that's phenomenon yeah i don't know how i But happens. i mean that's
0: that's that's your main thing right i mean you mm-hmm. don't um th- there's no other sort of advertising for you it's really like you do most of your sales through instagram
2: pretty much yeah it's just kind of like a um you know, an art gallery with a, with a, with a personality. Instagram's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of shit on there and, you know, as you guys probably do too, I spend too much time on it and I got to check myself. But I pretty much, you know, while I'm working, I have my tablet there and I'm, I try to keep up with, with messages and, you know, whatnot. But yeah. It's, so now it, do
0: you, you take orders then?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, most wow. of what I'm making now is our uh, custom orders. You know, people okay. reach out to me and they have a certain idea and I I, I try to accommodate the best I can. And it keeps, uh, I feel more challenged that way because I get some really off the wall requests and it makes me think about, you know, different materials or color schemes or designs that I otherwise wouldn't have thought of
0: yeah I mean sometimes that's good to sort of have a have a conversation with um with a collector or someone someone looking to invest in your work yep.
2: the knife making community for the most part has been a hundred percent positive for me so far i I can't think of anything bad to say about it and I'm sure that you know there are there are a lot of bad things to say about it i just my personal experience with it has been almost a hundred percent positive
0: i mean that that's good i think that um i think that in general I think people in this community are pretty, pretty outright with their knowledge. They're not too, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, certain finishes tend to be the most coveted thing. You know, how how did you finish this? How did you finish that? Or or if there's some sort of, you know, specific rub style uh, on a blade, but otherwise, you know, the, the, the techniques involved and the, and the equipment.
2: Yeah. It doesn't really belong to you. You know, this, that knowledge, because someone taught you or you learned from other people's knowledge so if you figure something out or if you do something a certain way and, and another maker reaches out to you and asks you then i feel like it's it's kind of your duty to help them out why not yeah you know there are i mean, there are no
0: secrets good way to look to at it
2: if if you no don't secrets. tell someone how something's done they're going to figure it out eventually
0: right i think sometimes the figuring it out part it can be the formation of someone's style in some cases. Absolutely. I guess if that's sort of, mm-hmm. you, you know, they're they're trying to figure out how to do it and that really, uh, that changes their whole perspective on it.
2: Yeah, like if you make a mistake and you go, it sends you in another direction and you discover a whole new uh, way of doing something, that, that can be great. It's kind of, you know, time consuming and expensive to go that route, but why not?
0: The other types of uh weapons that you that you've made you you talked about shurikens a little bit and then I, I know on your instagram feed i've seen some some trench knives and some knuckles
2: yeah uh, yeah i've um been making a lot of shurikens lately people love those things
0: yeah how much you like
2: um i've been selling the uh the ones out of quarter inch uh 10.95 with the hamones for 225
1: that's out of my that's out of my shuriken price range.
2: Yeah, and then the, I've been making well,
1: at their great price. they like the hormones are crazy.
2: Yeah, they're just kind of they're kind of grueling to make. Like a seven point has twenty eight bevels on it, so it's like you know it's like grinding uh, what seven dagger points, twenty eight bevels. Yep. Yeah, in the Yeah. Yep. Huh. I I usually make them two at a time. I just can't get myself into making more than that. I wonder if you can make a folding shuriken, like with a flipper, or like eject the blade or some shit. Yeah,
1: they sell those yeah. at the flea market.
2: <laughs> How about an OTF Katana? Yeah.
1: Fuck They're yeah. Three-sided.
2: Yeah. I, I need to figure out some kind of launching mechanism
3: for shurikens.
1: Just just a door spring. It would probably
3: be like, uh, like one of those things that you would use for like a shot put. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, like, or a, like a, a skeet launcher. Yeah, it would have to be like adapted and like retrofitted.
2: Yeah, yeah, one of those curved uh, arms for clay
0: pigeons. Nice, yeah.
2: you know those little uh, manual clay pigeon launchers. It's like a, yeah. a an arm with a little thing in it. You can throw those. Mm-hmm. Sure, mechanical. Really
3: as hell. I love the term mechanical advantage. Yes, there you go. I
0: want it's, a shirt. I want a
3: T-shirt that just says "I have the mechanical advantage." Yeah,
2: or just just mechanical advantage. There's a yeah. there's a billion dollars to be made in the T-shirt market. Just come up with really a really
0: really random shit with cool graphics
2: you
3: know
0: that's yeah that's literally my yeah like the advertising plan for pvk it's just uh spend some
3: the money today on t-shirts yeah they're not cheap
2: i, I mean a cool t-shirt's mm-hmm. gonna cost what 30 40 bucks or more 50
0: 60 yep. dollars
2: yeah the trick is to make them like don't go cheap on the t-shirts you know get the egyptian cotton yeah bespoke as hell yeah. yep i don't know anything about fabrics but I know, I know, uh, cotton is nice.
1: Uh, I didn't so want to make like it. Kirk, so shurikens, my guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, what made what made you like start going? Because I saw you read the book, like you're trying to go traditional designs. You weren't kind of going on yeah, your there.
2: I just kind of drew one out. I like I was saying, I made one in high school and kind of got myself in trouble doing it. And I didn't know anything about steel back then. I just made it out of. I don't even know what it was, maybe eighth inch, uh, mild steel. I didn't know anything about heat treat or, or what it did. I just, this was for sure that every time I threw it, the tip bent. So, you know, but yeah, that was the first one. And, um, I believe if I remember right, it was a four point, I don't know. One day I was messing around and I just kind of drew one up and made it. And, uh, yeah, people seem to love them. You know, it's,
1: I got Just a couple going. in my collection in the shop. I always throw them against a the wood board so when it falls, it's concrete, which isn't good.
2: Fuck yeah, it's a stress reliever.
1: I got uh I guess I got old school Japanese ones, like the original ones that back from the sixties. Uh huh. Uh it's like a three pack in leather case. I forget the brand. Mm-hmm. But it's it was like the ones to get back then.
2: Yeah, they're like the eight point uh no, I, got stars. The,
1: I got the four points. Okay. I noticed that uh,
2: RMJ Tactical is making them. What does he call them? The snowflake? He's making uh, an eight point.
1: I don't know. He makes one like, with a pretty cool kydex sheet. And the other one that mm-hmm. I have, it's, even it's a bit nicer because it's made of ABL, is by Robert Oldacker. It's a four point.
2: How is ABL as far as uh, toughness? It's, like, is it, is it going to chip?
1: No, it's damn tough. Like, that's the, what the main characteristic of ABL is toughness. Yeah. Just think about a stainless yeah. 52 100, is pretty much what it is.
2: Okay. I've had. Yeah, uh, no, I've got. There you go. So is it's it comparable to like stainless version of 3B? sort of.
1: Mm, Toughness wise, I think it's actually tougher than 3B. If you look at the scale, holy shit! And it's stainless. Yeah, it's it's because it's like 50 to 100. so it's like a carbon stainless. Uh-huh. Uh It's not. It doesn't have the craziest ed, like edge. It's like a 440C for edge retention. Uh huh. Main characteristic is toughness. That's why a lot of guys use it for kitchen knives. Yeah, yeah I've got It's 1200 for a stainless.
2: I've got some uh, 3V quarter inch 3V. I don't know. Quarter inch it's like point two oh seven, and some Z-Tough. I was thinking about making some shurikens with that stuff, but unfortunately, uh, the the is not going to work. So yeah, I but just,
1: it'll, it'll, they'll they'll do great abl. I have, mine's made at abl, and it falls on textured uh, concrete all, every day.
2: Well, damn! Now that I know that, I'm gonna have to order a, a build of that and make like a, a a sword, short sword with it.
1: Yeah, I've I've broken like tips off of them, but like I'm talking about like the like less than a sixteenth of an inch off a tip broke, and i it's mm-hmm. falling on textured concrete in my shop. So,
2: yeah, was that from falling on the concrete or trying to pry with it?
1: No, that's hitting the the board and it's not sticking, or it bounced it. off and falling like eight feet onto textured concrete.
2: Yeah, yeah, the hamon works well with that. Because uh, you know, if you bring the bring the clay really close to the edges, you know, you get a lot of shock resistance that way. But the tip is still going to be hardened. So you know, well, ten ninety.
1: also ground is really thin, but they're they're holding up still. The, the tips have broken, mm-hmm. but for the amount of times it fell on concrete, it's still pretty good.
2: Yeah, well, you got the tools. You can just reprofile them, regrind them.
1: Yeah, I'm just lazy. I'll do it once yeah. in a while, but not not all the time.
2: You know, I was going to say something about you being lazy, even though I don't know. I don't know you like nick you lazy
1: i'm the most energetic lazy person ever
2: i'm gonna be all over your nuts about finishing that short sword no I would, every I'll day
1: I. the moment i get to get a chance to heat treat it. no one i know has a, uh i need a pretty much a 32 inch oven that's the well, send problem. it
2: to me send it to me i'll i'll do it for you i've got a 40 inch uh even yeah, heat.
1: Steve, but if i'm serious about actually finishing it like i'd rather just start over yeah i don't like the the way that i did the plunge thing like i should have just actually grabbed the normal plunge yeah, zero. I have to make a guard for it that I have to file the guard to mimic the edge. Uh huh. And everything I attach has to file to mimic the edge. It was not a smart construction plan. It was yeah. more like I wanted to just try to grind it. And I was like, when I ground it, I was like, oh, this wasn't great for construction.
2: Yeah, I really need to start getting down with the jewelry saw and the needle files. Just looking at some of these people's work. Like, uh, do you know who Niels Vandenberg is? The Black Dragon Forge.
1: Uh, I don't know him, but I know Black Dragon Forge.
2: Yeah, man. His his work is incredible. But uh, yeah, him and uh, Cast Knives, it's obvious that they're getting busy with the jeweler's saw.
3: It's pretty yeah, amazing. Yeah, Cast Knives, man. Jesus.
2: Yeah, it's like a whole it's team of brothers, weird. isn't it? Like one guy doing the sheaths. Um, I think it is, yeah. It, mm-hmm. I think it's two, two, two or guys. three, uh, yeah. Yeah. You obviously have have, like, a, obviously so very come. talented. One oh, yeah. of them
1: just sits there and grinds blades out like crazy.
2: Hmm. Well, whatever they're doing, they're doing it right. Their uh, wakazashis that they've made are just outstanding. Really nice.
1: Uh, I'm fine. they're like sub built.
2: Hmm. Yeah, he made a uh uh. Is it broadsword recently? That's pretty fantastic. Yep. There's a lot of people out there making cool shit. It's intimidating. I feel like all those people don't get enough recognition. No. Yeah. Oftentimes the most talented people are, you know, they're in the margins. Yeah. Well, they spend all their time working. They don't have time for social media and, and promoting.
1: I just said shit with a hammer till it works.
2: Hey, we should start some kind of agency where, you know, you know how they have uh, talent agents for musicians and actors? What if you started a talent, talent agency where you represented artists like knife makers, uh, furniture makers, and basically the, the, uh, the agent well, was like a manager
1: is they I to have to them. get better at my own social media. To, to yeah. others.
2: Well, let's face it. If you spend all your time in the shop, it's, you know, at the end of the day, you don't have the energy or the time to do it. And if you, if you could, if you had someone that say they took what is a 15 or 20% just mark up your prices and they have the golden Rolodex. They do all the emails, social media, promoting, and you just work.
0: I've, I've actually tried that business twice before doing say, what like, I do now. This yeah, that's, that's, uh, I
1: Jeremiah to do that for me. And it, it just, it's always like, how do the I problem pay?
0: is that The problem is that dealing with artists isn't worth it because uh-huh. while I love them, they're all finicky assholes well, and fuck nobody them. can I mean, figure if, out like, how much to pay each other. Like, I used to do it for painters, and it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Selling you just got to be is, straight up. That's not the hard part. Selling things mm-hmm. is easy. Dealing with the painters is the, oh, my God. Well, yeah, zero
2: prima donna. just well, have no, you, life makers. Just zero tolerance. Just tell them up front, if I don't like you, or if, you, if it's hard to work with you, then I'm not going to represent you. So, if you yeah, want I mean, me to do my job, then...
1: Dave, after this ends, Jeremiah's gonna send me a goddamn text message here. Oh.
0: It's all these, uh, it's all He's the fervored
2: egos. You just open no, up I a mean, can of worms. Huh? It's
0: it's not a bad idea. It's it's really. I mean, I think that's where at some point dealers kind of just do come in, where it's just like, look, you don't want to deal with people. I'll deal with people. That's where I get the percentage from. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I don't know.
2: Anyway, if you're a maker, it's it's. I mean. I don't know about you guys, but I'm just, I'm kind of addicted to the, what do they call it? The flow state. You know, I get up yeah, at four thirty or five and I come into the shop and, and drink coffee. And I just put my head down and work and 10 I'm hours, sorry. 10 hours is gone like that. Boom.
1: that That's pretty much mm-hmm. me from the two, uh, pretty much like 2 PM, 2 PM to like 3 AM. I'm just in the shop.
2: Yep. That's, I mean, that's the price of admission, right? <clears throat> you got to pay your respects to the craft by giving it everything you have
1: that's how the float say that's a good way to say it for much. If I get in the shop, I start like, I don't, I can't sit down to get on my phone or something like that. Cause I was mm-hmm. just sit there for an hour. I lose concentration. I like to kind of do it, get it done, go home. And then I'm oh like, yeah. I'll take care of it when I get home. And I'm like, I'm tired. I'm going to bed.
2: Yeah. When I come home, it's pretty much uh Netflix and food and that's it. Yep. You got to stay focused. It's everything. It is kind of a solitary lifestyle, though. You know, being a knife maker, it's kind of losing my ability to to communicate because I work so much.
1: Oh, I had that issue. I did it for ten. I've doing this for ten years, but for about two years, I moved out of New York to go with no friends, nothing. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't afford a shop here in New York. I left home. I was like, I'm just gonna go. It's cheaper for me to live out there and work out there.
2: Yeah, you gotta and live in a shop.
1: Two years, I became a. Her- no, I had an apartment. But mm-hmm. I became a hermit. It's like social skills. I started lacking in social skills and how to talk to people that I didn't know. And yeah, I, just because I didn't. Like I didn't talk to family. I'll talk to my family on the phone or whatever. But like I just woke up, went to shop, the, the the things, got home, ate, watched the TV, went to bed, woke up. Like that was me six days a week, and on week on one like one day a week, I'd go home or something like that to back to New York. Yeah.
2: I had so much anxiety doing this podcast because I'm like, man, I don't even know if I can communicate anymore. So on the way to work today, I stopped at the liquor store and picked up a baby Jack Daniels and had a couple of shots. And I don't know the words. I guess the words just start hatching if you don't think about All it right, too once much. Once
1: you start talking, then just kind of goes like we've been yeah. off topic here for a bit, and just there's still something to talk about.
2: Yeah, the topic is off topic. Yeah, yeah. When things become too regimented and and planned, it, that kind of screws it up. You know, I was writing things down today, like what do, what do I want to say or. You know, or my history is my background's is kind of boring. I talk about this. I'm like, you know what? Scrap it. I'm just going to whatever comes up. That's what we yeah, talk we, about.
1: We say we're going to write shit down every time. And it's like it never really works out because then yeah. when we actually do write stuff down. And just not you know, it really fits in. Right. Yeah. It's like contrived.
2: Like you're trying to cram shit in that you planned and it doesn't really fit with what's going on or what kind of mood everyone else is in.
1: It's like same thing if I write the schedule for what I'm going to do at work that next day. I'll like, okay, I'll go to the shop. I got to do this, 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 and this. And like, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll get more shit done, but I did nothing that was on that list.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Just priorities, right?
1: I just kind of, mm-hmm. I figure out better for me. It's like I'll just wake up, walk into the shop, look left, look right. Okay. This is what I'm doing today. And when I get this yeah. done, I can go home.
2: How are you when, like when you're working and someone comes into the shop randomly and starts talking to you, how, do you have difficulties with that?
1: Not really, because I usually, I mean, I, I'll usually work 12 or 13 hour shifts. Uh, mm-hmm. And for at least half of those, I have someone in my ear. So I'm talking to another life maker on the phone. So I'm yeah. pretty good at multitasking and working.
2: There you go. You got the Bluetooth set up. Yeah. No, so it. the last
1: eight months, I've been working with my dad. So there's someone else in the shop always. So kind of used to getting, mm-hmm. like, I'm kind of used to it. But there are okay. makers drive into to their shop and like, I'll, they'll, they'll stop working and I'll just kind of try to occupy myself to let them Mm -hmm. get back on track. Yeah. Some guys aren't really the best at multitasking, working and talking, but I know exactly what I mean. Uh, Matt
2: Gregory was telling me recently, because I had mentioned something about being completely autodidactic. Like I just kind of, you know, learned by making mistakes. And he said, uh, you really need to get out because, you know, spending two days in another maker shop, you'll learn more than you, than you would just in your own shop for two years, just seeing how they do things, uh, you know, how they grind or, or their design process. And I could totally see that. I just don't know anyone that's, that's within 500 miles of me. Yeah.
1: Well, I flew, I flew to maker shops. That's how I learned in the beginning. I used to fly to Rob Carter's shop a lot. Oh, yeah! I was a new maker uh-huh. and he was a seasoned maker, but we definitely learned just as much off each other. Cause I was modern and I was uh-huh. on the machining side and not pre CNC, this was manual machines, but, I just had a knack to, uh, for understanding how the mill worked and fixture setups and repeatability, and he didn't. But he knew how to grind and make a knife and yeah. finish it shoot, shoot well. So, about three trips over there and two trips over here, and we kind of modernized, I modernized him and he taught me how to finish it well.
2: Mm-hmm. And machine work, that's our knowing how to do it. That's golden. I know very little, I understand the rudiments of like a vertical mill and a lathe. Um, I do use vertical mills to cut folders and uh, mill slots, but and I could see how learning that that stuff is it just takes your stuff to the next level. Yeah, sure. when
1: you're doing when you're doing folders and stuff, you kind of want repeatability. So oh, absolutely. Most of, most of the trick is is learning uh like the understanding of how to set up repeatable fixtures.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even with in, grinding,
1: mm-hmm. even like, with my grinders are all set up with proprietary jigs and fixtures. I usually absolutely. I, basic grinders but my grinders have at least three grand modifications in them Mm -hmm. between all the custom fixtures that i've made
2: yeah all the uh rests and and uh angle jigs and everything i've made all myself just based around what i needed you know i'm not afraid to take uh two or three days out just to stop and look at something if i want to try something different just build a jig or, or build no, I'm a fixture definitely
1: not that's definitely one of my problems is all, like I'll, I'll push myself to like oh i really need to build this thing where i really don't need to yeah like i'll talk myself well, into needing to do that so that way i, go, cause I like building shit more than like like making knives i like making fixtures and stuff like that is it
2: only after you've built it that you realize that you don't need it or is it just you're talking no, yourself i know, into I, know the, you? I know
1: the entire time that i don't really need it but i talk myself into it staying and building it because i want to build it well it's
2: fun yeah.
1: yeah that's the thing i, I get more gratification because for me and i like i figured them out like i can make a knife ass backwards with any tool you give me mm-hmm. uh so for me it's no longer fun it's, it's a job i just have to get it done get paid move on move on to the next one yeah. so i get to build a fixture or a jig i have to think about it. To, how, do, how am i going to use this thing how am i going to build it how is it going to what what key points about it uh, make it repeatable uh, uh-huh. if i'm going to add on to it like or if, um, like most of my jigs are spe- specific to some models and some of them work for uh-huh. models and i start Absolutely. thinking well oh, if this is going to be a universal one like and i add models to it later on how do i add on to this jig how do i modify it for the stuff like is it modifiable and like mm-hmm. i enjoy that process of pre-planning and thinking about it so but there's times where it's like i what i'm doing that works i don't really need this newer version but i want to build it and then i've been kind of doing the same thing over and over again. So I'm going to do this.
2: Yeah. Well, it takes you out of your, uh, what do they call a plateau? You know, where you, I find myself working on certain things and I'm not even really thinking about what I'm doing, but when I stop and try something different or build a different tool, it's difficult. Yes. But it also forces you to think. And then by doing that, you come up with a different way of doing it, which is oftentimes really good. That was one of the good things about getting away from doing the architectural stuff. Is I used to hate doing installation work. Oftentimes, it was out of town. I'd get up at three in the morning, load up all my tools, try to remember everything, hope I didn't forget anything, hope everything fits, drive three hours, drag all my tools into someone's house. It was just, it was a nightmare.
1: That was the thing when I was a locksmith. I hated taking tools into people's houses. Oh, like you walk in there and then you get the, the like. There's always a nasty lady. It's like. I just did my floors this week. Don't scratch anything. I'm like, look, mm-hmm. lady, like you should have did your locks first. Like, obviously, I'm be drilling your door and like taking your door off the hinges. Sometimes, like, you yep. thought about this?
2: Yeah, having to grind and weld on like a sixty thousand dollar cherry wood staircase, not fun. Not hmm. fun.
0: Did you uh, gates for any uh, any anybody in particular? Any any memorable people we might know? Yeah, I was uh, Um, looking on your
3: Instagram and uh, happened to see that you did one for Alex Gray. Yeah, I
2: did a couple pieces for him. My friend Zach, who uh, passed away, actually, he worked for Alex Gray when he was opening the Cosm Gallery in Chelsea. And uh, yeah, he turned me on to Alex and I had a phone conversation with him and I made a couple of uh, pieces for him. And then I made it was originally for the elevator in their studio in New York. But uh, that particular gate, um, they took it off when they got that piece of property in upstate New York. They took it and uh, installed it in the, I think they have a gift shop. But I, I haven't seen him or talked to him in a long time, but man, he's an outstanding person. Super humble, super intelligent. Just great guy.
3: Yeah, he seems like a a unique, really awesome person.
2: Yeah, speaking of flow state, I mean, yeah, that, been- that guy's paintings are are oh, yeah. amazing. Been very inspirational for me. Have you seen any of them in real life? Uh, never in real life, huh? Oh, man. I mean, just you, you could walk up to him and put your nose against the canvas. It's and the, the he's got like paintbrushes that have like one hair on them. Mm-hmm. I know. He's like, like so technical. Yeah. Yeah. He spends years and years and years.
3: I mean, I don't know how much he paints anymore, but he he doesn't sell his work either. Yeah. The newest ones he's done, I guess, are, were uh, for uh, furinoculum, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's the newest stuff I've seen from him. Oh, uh, for the for the tool album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is it all looks great. Yeah, it was uh
2: Alex had talked to me a while ago. I guess uh Adam Jones, the guitar player, mm-hmm. he he wanted he saw the gate and he wanted me to make him something, but uh I just it never went through. It's kind of bummed yeah. That would have been a great gig. That would have been cool. Yeah, their their music's pretty badass. It's, they're like uh Kind of like Pink Floyd in a way, not not the style of music, but in that they're they're really original. Like if you were to describe Pink Floyd to someone who's never heard it, you can't really say it's rock and roll. Um, you know, it, it's there's no way to classify that music.
3: Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah, it's it's different. It's not your standard rock and roll format. Nope, not at all. Our other hosts don't feel the same, but no, <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah, music's one of those things. You
2: either feel it or you don't, you know everyone's got their style. That's I pretty cool. much like everything if it's if it's good, it's good and I like it
1: Same. I, I like i don't I don't find myself to any particular genre if I like how it sounds I like it but like i don't I don't fall into music like Elijah does for me i
2: mm-hmm.
1: I, I can't listen like I work like I said twelve thirteen hour shifts. I can't listen to music for that like i I'll, I'll listen to like ten hours of podcast then maybe yeah. in the between I listen to like an hour of music within my day,
2: yeah. Yeah, it just kind of depends. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately. The uh, Martyr Made podcast has really got me hooked. Like I, it's uh, I think there's about eighteen podcasts, and they're between two and three hours long. And it's it's um, pretty amazing. This guy has read a lot of books and done a lot of research, but they all flow together. A lot of it has to do with you know the, the struggles of humanity and war, um, history. But yeah, super addicting stuff.
1: That's yeah, the stuff I listen to. Because uh, I, I, if I'm learning something while I work, I kind of mm-hmm. zone off, and that's how I, I work those shows. I said when I get in there. I, I just go until I stop, and I go home. Because if I'm learning something while I'm listening while getting the task done, yeah, kind of. I have to keep every cylinder firing. It's mm-hmm. either all, all all eight cylinders fire or, or none of them. Uh, there's no in between for me, so I have to yeah. keep everything. Like, even in, like when I, when I used to play video games. I'll be playing video games while texting, while listening to a podcast or a YouTube video, while working on CAD work, like on my laptop, my CAD, like in between loading screens. Like I just, this is just how I work. Like I, it was either zero or under it.
2: Yeah. That's why I can't work when I'm not well slept. Like you said, if I'm not hitting on all eight cylinders, I can't do it. Like if I'm hungover, I'd come in and I'm like, oh yeah, I could work today. And I get there so and I'm like, nah, no, it's not well happening.
1: Slept is when I work like they've seen me work not when not when I'm not slept essentially because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. when I'm if I'm not slept I'm only flying on eight cylinders because the moment <laughs> I get to seven cylinders I go down to zero the moment I stop to relax is when it's over yeah, like they they've, seen me, they've they've watched me work they they've gone to bed to sleep they waking up and I'm still running around working cuz if I sit down I'm I'm out like I'll make a cup of coffee but I don't sit down to drink my coffee It just as I walk around I'll drink the coffee cuz the moment I sit down That's it.
2: Yeah. So you don't have like a really regimented schedule. You just kind of work until you're done.
1: Yeah. Like I said, I'll walk in the shop. Well now it's a little bit more regimented because I have an employee now. Uh, Mm -hmm. But like weekend days and he, he works four days a week. So when I'm there without him, uh, I'll still like, it just kind of, I'll walk in there and I'll look around. I'm like, okay, like this has to get done today. When it's done, I'll go home and it might get done in nine hours. It might get done in 14 hours. I'll just, get it I'll get it done like uh there's four blades to grind then do this and that, and that. like sometimes I'll be three blades in I'll be like uh oh, 31 a.m about but if I'll just finish this blade right now and go home and I'll just get home an hour and a half later because I know if I leave it yeah. till next morning it's gonna take me four hours to grind that blade by the time I get it to the rhythm set up everything to go yep so I'm yeah
2: gonna it. no one said pimping was easy <laughs> gotta keep that pimp hand strong fuck yeah uh, I I feel a strong pull towards buying more belt grinders. Uh, I spend so much time swapping stuff out, swapping the wheel, swapping the the, the fixture, and move this, move that.
1: Uh, yeah, that's why I have, like I have dedicated. I have two grinders and six work rests. So the work rests are dedicated for different wheels and platens. So like I have one work rest that's always set up for just my swedges. One that's set up just for hollow grinding. One set up just for my tanto tips. Like they're I don't, I don't like adjustable work rests.
2: So you have like the particular tool arm set up where you just pull the arm arm out, put it in. This
1: arm is always 60 degrees. This arm is always 90. This one's always 45. This one's always seven degrees. Yeah. Uh, This one's always for the horizontal or the small wheel. I just have a shit ton of work rests.
2: Do you do any freehand grinding?
1: Uh, I used to not really anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. Just because it's, it's faster. Yeah. Uh, I tell everyone who starts making knives, start freehand and then do the jig. Because if you try to jig grind and you encounter some weirder grind, you won't be able to do it unless you have freehand knowledge. Plus, you become way better of a grinder understanding the three dimensional dynamic of grinding it, opposed to when you're a jig, it's pretty much two dimensional.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Using a jig is, uh, it really limits you depending on what you're doing. Like if you're doing like a recurve or like a kukri grind. If you don't know how to freehand grind, it's it's gonna you know there's certain things you can't do using a jig.
1: Oh, it's not even yeah. that. Sometimes when you start grinding on a jig, now you're grinding big things. I'm grinding folders. It's not as repeatable as you'd hope. Sometimes um, mm-hmm. just because you have this jig set up to like it's a two point system. One goes through the pivot to hold the blade. And there's another there's another screw that kind of adjusts the blade rotation. So adjust the edge lineup essentially. Got it. Uh, All the blades are shaped a little differently every time. So sometimes it's not perfectly parallel. And and when you're grinding, that'll change. And your grind might start walking away from you. Uh, On one Mm -hmm. side, like you you ground one side and you're at the proper edge thickness and you're at the proper grind height. Mm -hmm. And then you grind the other side and you're at the proper edge thickness, but your grind's too low or vice versa. Your grind's already at the grind height, but like you still have another 10th out to take off the edge. Yeah, And that's when the jigs start to limit you, and then I'll pull them off the jig and then feather it in by freehand to finish it up. Yeah, of the course. The jigs, they, they'll have grinds that are lopsided side to side because they don't know how to even them out when the jig starts to pull them into one direction.
2: Yeah, when you get closer to being done with a grind, it's unforgiving, like a really long hollow grind. And if you, uh, you know, you could, I can could almost see my heartbeat in the grind. If you hiccup, you need to make a big bump in it.
1: Well, for you, mm-hmm. it's not. For me, it's just traversing my hands. Um, mm-hmm. I, for you, it's a little bit more complex. I remember when I was guarding the sword, I had to pretty much traverse my hands for whatever, however, like 9, 10 inches. And then now the, the the hips have to start swaying to get the additional 4 inches. And then the yeah. knees have to start swaying to get the additional 3 or 4 inches. And the ankles have to start swaying. And then you do it the other way.
2: <laughs> yeah, as long as you don't have to take a step. I've noticed uh, I've the best results when I lock my elbows into my hips and just kind of move with uh, my hips and my legs and pull it across. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I sh- I'd hate it. I'd hate to see a video of myself grinding. It's probably re- pretty ridiculous looking. I can only imagine the, I imagine the faces that I make when I'm working.
1: Well, the, the sword that I ground, I actually ground on the wheel vertically. Uh-huh. So I... I- put the blade facing downwards and rested it on my palm and just slid it along my palm up and down.
2: Yeah. So you're using a a, a, a round contact wheel, but you're grinding yeah, it flat.
1: Yeah, a six inch wheel and grinding a flat. So point, like I said, point it down and then using my palm to adjust pretty much the fingers would push against and adjust the angle mm-hmm. and it's rest against my palm and my right hand will just kind of pull back and forth using a glove you know? with my left hand so if it kind of felt like a bearing surface.
2: Do you know who Peter Johnson is, the sword maker? yeah oh man i was watching a video of him grinding and he he does everything that way he was teaching some kids how to grind and man that guy's work is unreal
1: yeah most of the the sword makers that most of the hammer are grinding that way so i saw them do it that way so that's what i tried mm-hmm. it was the same thing i think it was like a 26 inch blade and there's only so much motion you can go with your hands so i saw i was making the joke i was like your hands go then your waist goes then your knees go then your ankles go to get the full sweep and then you have yeah. the other way
2: yeah. If you grind it horizontally, I think you have to work in sections. Like, I don't know how they feather those sections together. Like if you were doing a hollow grind that's 24 inches, you do 12 on the side, 12 towards the tip, and then somehow feather those together. I don't know. I It seems like undoable to me.
1: Well, the, the shop that I was working with, um, they were making essentially uh, kosher slaughter knives. So the, the, the kosher slaughter knife for cows is like a 20 inch blade you were having that issue, and I was trying to come up with a jig that ran on bearings. So mm-hmm. essentially, you stand on the side of the grinder, and you, you push with your left hand to push the jig in. But then you just use your right hand, and you just pull back and forth. Got it. So the so bearings cool. kind of let it ride, almost kind of like the TW-90 surface grinder attachment. Mm-hmm. But you So you stand yeah. on the side of the grinder instead of in front of it.
2: I've always wondered how those how well those things work. Obviously they don't work as well as a dedicated surface grinder, but
1: uh, I didn't use it as a surface grinder, I used it as a grinding machine. Because there's yeah. a built-in sign plate on there. Uh-huh. So you could angle it and uh so you... they ended up grinding most of those that way. They would angle it and use it as an angled surface grinder essentially.
2: Yeah, you could probably get some nice distal tapers doing it that way too, using using you know, a sign a sign plate.
1: That was interesting. I was messing around with that. The, the first sword that I, the second sword that I ground, uh, I just ground the too thin, was with that, with the sign plate system. And it looked just yeah. like the one that I did by hand. Yeah. It was just back yeah. and forth, back and forth. And then about 10 minutes, I had a sword ground.
2: Yeah, I've noticed that a lot of makers talk shit who grind freehand talk shit about people who use who use jigs. And um yeah,
1: it's, bullshit. It's, it's like yeah, the guys are like, oh no CNC. I'm like, great, come into my shop, use the equipment in my shop, make something. I can walk into yours and do what you do. Like it's it's a different work, it's a different skill.
2: The way you get to the finished product, does it really matter? You know, like it
1: really the the it ultimate goal and it a little Indian kid in India. It's yeah. That's the difference. Just be honest with how you make stuff. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Someone asked you a question and, you know, why you don't have anything to hide. I grind some stuff freehand and some things I use jigs depending on what it is. And, you know, ultimately it's the finished product that that you're after. Yeah. uh, I've noticed that a lot of uh, the makers who forage blades... They just, you know, they talk a lot of shit about people who. Uh,
1: no, they don't do talk shit, shit about jig guys. They talk about, they talk shit yeah, about guys just, at UCNCs.
2: Yeah. Or people who just do stock removal. Like that's not blade making. Um, it's really, you know, what, what you're after. Obviously there's things you can do when you forge a blade that you can't do. You know, like integral bolsters.
0: Well, yeah, I think I a guess, lot of it I guess just, she... just depends on different parts of the different parts of the collector community and different parts of the maker community. So, I mean, like mm-hmm. ABS guys are never going to probably get along with with a lot of the uh, with the stock removal guys or the CNC guys. But, um, you yeah. know, for a little while at Blade Show, they all sit at tables and and talk to each other. Um, yeah. But yeah, in the end, it, there's there's a there's an ask for every seat out there. I mean, there's there's a customer <laughs> for every 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 knife and, and every every uh, every sword. Yeah,
1: like, like I remember when I first started CNC knife making was a taboo. Yeah. Uh, well, I was a collector at least. When I was becoming a maker. It was a little bit more acceptable. Uh, and nowadays, there's collectors that only collect CNC knives because they like the, the, the perfection aspect of it, the accuracy, the repeatability of it. Mm-hmm. And there's guys yeah. that won't buy them because they don't like the repeatability of it.
2: Do you like uh, David Lisbeck's work? Yeah. Yeah, I've been tripping on that lately. He he makes some really nice folders, really organic looking.
1: Uh, I didn't know too much about him until uh, at the New York Knife show. Jared's the you're familiar? That's the one Mark had at the restaurant with the wood mm-hmm. handles.
0: Yeah, he's a great maker.
2: Yeah, he's French, I believe.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. I don't uh, even yeah, was- know
2: if I'm, if I'm pronouncing his name right. It's Lispect.
0: Yeah, that I'm front sure flipper model he has is uh, is yeah. is pretty on point. We handled a few of those, and, and they're really uh, it's something else. The action, the form, the feel in the hand is uh, it's a nice knife.
2: Yeah, super organic looking. You know, there's so much talent out there.
0: That is one of the good
2: things about social media is you're you know you get turned on to stuff you otherwise would have never seen.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a huge like um, mixing pot of uh, of visuals, you know, constantly scrolling through the feed and then you click on something and it shows you something else. And then, it, you know, it suggests something. Yeah, it. It's really it's 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 horrible how well the technology works when <laughs> when you don't even think about it. And then when you do think about it, it's terrifying because then you're an hour later and you're like, I'm I was done taking this shit a long time ago. This is taking way too long.
2: Yeah yeah when youtube uh started taking off i found myself falling into that hole oh man you could you can sit and watch 10 minute video clips for for eons
0: oh yeah no it's and just, just let the
2: algorithm take you where it wants to take you
0: which I oftentimes is you know yeah if you're in the right mindset you know that might that might work out if you're trying to be productive i don't, I don't know depending on yeah. your description of productivity <laughs> Yeah,
2: spending uh, eight hours on YouTube is definitely not productivity.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not. It's learning. not knife making.
2: No, no, it doesn't get anything done.
0: Uh, what about um, yeah. what about those knuckles you made? What was the inspiration for that?
2: Um, I don't know. They're just. I just. I've always thought knuckle dusters were pretty fucking awesome. You know? um, I really like the ones that Terry makes. Uh, Terry Shanks.
0: Yep. He actually yeah, sent
2: he, yeah. He sent me these gnarly knuckle, knuckle dusters. They're uh f- half or five eighths inch copper plate. Hmm. They're just like so killer. Yeah. Speaking of yeah, he's really, doing everything by he's hand,
0: coming in strong with with those knuckles yeah. lately. He, I, I was familiar with him a while back when he was just doing um a lot of blade work, and then he, I think he got connected with uh with Billy trident on Instagram mm-hmm. and they kind of um they went over some knuckle work and he really he's he's uh he's gotten deep into the knuckle world. Um
2: which yeah. is cool they're they're like shurikens People really they're they're iconic people love them.
0: They do. Yeah. No they they very much so. I, I see Terry like he's he's cranking those. Like he's he's got yeah. serious demand for that product.
2: Yeah I'm constantly referring people to him because if someone asked me about knuckle dusters, I'm like, hey, you know, check out, check out Terry's stuff. Not that I don't like them, but oftentimes I'm buried with other stuff and or I don't feel like making them at the time.
0: Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it's, great it's guy, though. one of those things. Um, I, I saw the you, um, you know, uh, Jason, um, the knife thrower. Oh, yeah. Jason Johnson. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He's a cool guy had a f- couple of conversations with him on the phone. I haven't met him in person, but, um, I make, made him a knife. Um, it was actually one of the first knives I made hmm. was, uh, th- three years ago. Oh, yeah. wow.
0: Yeah. Okay. He's, it was uh, presumably a good. throwing knife. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was,
2: um, pretty big though. It was an 18 inch Tonto straight. The brass guard, uh, believe with G10 handles. So I just made it solid. I think I made it out of 80 CRV2, um, yeah, he's hmm. unable to break it. So that stuff's pretty rugged. I don't like yeah. the way it etches, though. It's kind of kind of weird. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That that sort of that that um, that tanto for th- for throwing knives is very. Uh, he seems to have taken to that that form quite well. Yeah, I, I think he yeah. he he was probably not making then when when you made him that.
2: No, I don't think so. But he has uh, now seen some of the ones he's making. It seems like a, a spear point or a dagger would be the best for throwing.
0: Yeah, just for, for more edges in general, more points. Yeah, just the, the the geometry of the tip is for piercing. Right.
2: I think he made a comment on a video that was funny. He said something about uh, you can throw anything with a point.
0: Hmm. You know, a pair of needle nose pliers, anything. Right. Yeah. He's been in the shop a couple times and we've talked about combat throwing and, and his, mm-hmm. he was like, well, if, if you just want to hurt somebody and like take them down, it doesn't really matter. Like it, whatever you're throwing, as long as it like hits them really hard with some sort of point, like you did the, you did the thing. That's, that's what's supposed to happen. You know, yeah. if they fall down, you did good.
2: I think shurikens, um, I'm pretty sure they're not intended to be lethal or even close to lethal. It's more like a distraction so like if you're a ninja or an assassin and you want to strike someone who has a weapon you know you toss a shuriken at their face and while they're wrapped up with that then you strike with the sword
1: yeah, it kind of makes was sense about that. I was like these don't seem that lethal
2: no it'd be pretty you'd have to have a really really heavy like, let's hit someone
1: in the neck or something like that
2: yeah, hit him in the jugular yeah but uh definitely a, a katana or a sword will do the trick it's like Following, you know, like a jab, throwing a jab to, to hide the uh, the haymaker behind it.
0: So you also, so earlier, um, you've ground um double edge. I've I've seen you make a uh, full size, like I don't know, broadswords or something. Um, there uh-huh. that are, that are double edge daggers. How, what? That's insane. So that's uh, that's another twenty four inch grind times times two. Or, or four four bevels or four yeah
2: yeah I need to figure out how to grind something up. the ones that I've made are just straight all the way down and mm-hmm. then um, I just, I need to figure out like like the, I look at the way the Cast Brothers are doing their blades and they have these really intricate shapes and the the bevels are so like they, the way they flow I need to take some time off just take a month and and clear everything out and just sit down and figure out how how to grind something like that. You know, just practice.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean like that's, that's the needed mental reset sometimes to really, you know, look at the process all over again and and figure out how to change it for your, for your benefit or, or for some, for some new outcomes.
2: Yeah. Because if you get buried with orders and you're you're doing the same thing over and over that you've already done, then I mean, I would imagine you're, you're, ultimately getting better at what you're doing, but you're not really trying anything new.
3: explorative kind of goes away.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're working, you know, 10 hours in the shop and at the end of the 10 hours, you you weren't really aware of what you were doing, I think that could, that's kind of a problem. Like maybe you should take a step back and try something different where you're more involved.
1: Well, I do that a lot. I just go in there, and then I'll come home. and My dad's like, oh, what would you get done today? So, like, I don't know stuff. I just, yeah, I just I just worked until I went home.
2: And spent ten hours hand sanding.
1: Yeah, like what did you do though? Like, I don't know. Things got done though. You'll see. You'll see tomorrow. I did stuff, so it, it got it done. Productive. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it was a productive day. I don't know what I did, but stuff got done.
2: It's a really common theme in podcasts I've noticed with uh, especially knife making podcasts. Are uh, like what what are your least favorite and most favorite materials and also uh, different aspects of knife making like hand sanding or grinding. What are your least and most favorite?
1: I don't Do like have? hand sanding. I just don't like grinding. I, love, yeah, I like the result of my grinds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just too like anal and OCD about my grinds that I, I hate doing it. Cause I know I'm gonna get in there and like the first 90%, I don't mind. It's that last 10% getting the plunge lines lined up and not mm-hmm. only uh, lined up a lot of guys, uh, will look if they're lined up, then a lot of guys don't look if they're similar arcs side to side. Sometimes you, you'll get a knife and you look at it, and it happens on mine too once in a while. And just at a certain point, I can't touch it up, but it'll yeah. be an art, a, a nice, even, gradual arc on one side, and then the other side, it's a straight line that arcs off of there. Wow. Grind and try to make them the same until they're like, oh, I'm just gonna keep fuck it up if I keep going. This is the best this one's gonna be.
2: Yeah. Then, I've never I've not made any folders yet, but I could see how uh you could definitely chase the plunge line all the way back to the pivot.
1: Yep. And then also uh most of the stuff I do is compound ground tantos. I don't really grind anything that's less than six bevels per blade. So that's mm-hmm. not really that easy on the small knives either. There's a lot of uh compounding lines that have to be nice side to side. And uh yeah. I I wish I was more lenient about it, but I'm not, so that makes me hate doing it.
2: Yeah, well, you 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 really have to be hard on yourself, I mean, and no one else is going to be. So,
1: yeah, I push Forever, usually I'll I'll it's the problem is my dad's like, well he'll, he'll walk in there he like, you grind the blade yet? Yeah. Because once I grind it, he he does the acid wash or the tumble or sandblast whatever has to get done with it. If it's not a satin grind, he's like you mm-hmm. done. I was like no. He's like the last one you took you an hour. I'm like yeah. Well, sometimes. That last ten percent could take me two hours just for that ten percent. If I fuck up and not to scrap it, I'll have to really have to slowly chase it, and that's when things suck.
2: Because yeah, I want to finish
1: the, that if I don't want to go on to the next one. I'm like, ah, oh, this sucks.
2: The trick is to do not become conscious of what you're doing while you're doing it. Because that's every time I fuck up, it's because uh, like I'll make a really slight error, and then all of a sudden I'm really conscious of what I'm doing. I'm think overthinking, and then I just fuck everything up. It's almost like I I just need to lock up and go home for the day and reset.
1: Yeah, I don't. I used to, that was back in the day when I used to grind one or two blades at a time. Now I'm grinding 10 at a time. So it's like halfway, once I get the rhythm, I'm just kind of blasting through it. And then sometimes because I'm blasting through, I'm like, oh, I just get too confident. And then I'll have a shot something. Okay. Yeah, I got to go back on the other side and now chase it to make it look like the side I fucked up, which is usually not a <laughs> fuck up. It's more like I just overblasted it and now I have to make the other side match back up to it again.
2: Yeah. Modified, right?
1: Yeah, it's not like you know, I like, uh, want the grind to be this high and the plunge to stop here and I'll get it right on the first side and then I'll fuck up on the second side. So that means I have to go grind the third level because I got to go redo the first side again. That's already been done at the proper grit.
2: Have you ever actually come up with a design via a fuck up like that?
1: Uh, not in the folder days. Back when I was making kitchen I was fixed blades, yeah, all the time.
3: Yeah, learn from
2: your fuck-ups.
1: You, usually if that happens, you end up making something that has a weird blade-to-handle ratio. It's
3: mm-hmm. so like one thing can't, like, like, once you fuck up one thing, like, you start chasing lines and, like, it all overlaps and all the fuck-ups compound and then you can't, <laughs> like, like, save the work. <laughs> you make a paperweight.
1: Uh, that happens a, in Chad,
3: too. Like, yeah.
1: The only time that ever happened to me in folders that made a design is the the micro. So I make the MK1, which is three and a quarter. And then the micro is the same knife, two and a half inches. and But it's just scaled down. So it's shorter and narrower Mm -hmm. uh, and thinner. But the first micro, it never got done. But the idea for it was I messed up MK1. I ground it shorter. But it was the same width because I couldn't make it because of the lock bar everything. I couldn't make it narrower. And the stock was the stock. I couldn't make it thinner. So I just made it shorter. And I was like, oh, I like the size, but it was really, it looked like a chode because it was almost as wide as it was long. And I was like, it doesn't look good. So I went into CAD and then made the ratios right. That's what first gave me that design was when I when I was modifying that one.
2: Yeah, chode, that's a great name for a knife.
1: Well, There's a few knives <laughs> I've to call chodes.
2: Chode. Yeah.
1: And even that one, I couldn't finish it because by the time I ground the handle shorter to match that blade, there was like no meat left that was holding up the lock bar still
2: you yeah, chasing it to death
1: yeah so that's why in the folder stuff that doesn't really happen often uh maybe back in the day I, I had a knife that like i was grinding and i ground a little too thin and maybe i, I reshaped it to be a recurve looking thing mm-hmm. i haven't done that in like eight years but that was maybe at most with a folder that could have done uh but i it had to be enough to work and make it look good i probably did it like three times two times maybe yeah. Uh, and then you try to recurve it, and it doesn't look good, and then you scrap it, or maybe that one or two or three times that I did it, it, looked good, and I left it.
2: Yeah, you either win or you learn, right?
1: That's what they say.
2: Wiser men than me have said that anyway.
1: Yeah, even if it's a fuck-up, you can't sell it unless it looks right, though.
2: No. No.
1: Keeping it won't pay the bills.
2: Just make yourself a folding throwing knife for the shop. Yeah.
1: The amount of handles and, and blades that i have in my shop that are like half scrap it's like oh like I'll, I'll take all these scrap parts and finally make me a knife to carry and use and beat up and that never happens and that this black could probably build like 10 uh that'll actually work but there are things that are off that i can't sell about them mm-hmm. there's parts for hundreds that don't work but about 10 that i could actually build
2: yeah you should never let something go that you're not comfortable with that will haunt you for the rest of your life to know there's well, something out it, there floating it, it's, around. It's not
1: that it's out there. It's that uh, eventually someone else, that, that guy will re, that guy will resell it. And mm-hmm. the next guy will find the issue what that guy didn't notice or didn't care about. And you'll never inevitably, inevitably get an email asking to fix something or refurb something. And you see the knife that you didn't want out in the first place, like somehow try to make it, its way back to you. And mm-hmm. you have to work on it. And then you're like, I just want to build this guy a new knife.
2: Yeah, we'll do it. Why
1: not? I haven't had that, but I know, I've know i known of makers. Uh, I I was in those positions. Thankfully, I didn't have to. Where guys were just saying they, they weren't in the, the best financial moment. And they were like, I just, I just have to sell this knife. I have to send it out. A lot mm-hmm. of guys were doing that when they were first starting out. Uh, but it always comes back to bite you in the ass for what I just explained. Eventually, someone is going to get it that that figures out what was wrong with it or they didn't like that what you didn't like about it either. Mm-hmm. And then you actually get it back a year or two years from now, and then you're like, oh, "I'm just gonna build a guy in your knife."
2: Yeah, I like the feeling of of making a knife for another knife maker. Yeah, that's uh, something. Oh, I love doing that. ugh.
1: there's usually a dick inside of those knives. I made a uh, Chris floating around well, with dicks in them.
2: <laughs> I made a uh, Chris from uh, Pariah Knives. I don't know if you guys know Chris. He's yeah. a great guy. Um, I did a trade with him. I made him a wakazashi, but man, I was losing sleep over that. Just you know, sending sending something to a knife maker who I really respect and I've I really appreciate. Did he
3: make wire knife too.
2: I'm sorry. Did he make you a knife too as well? Yeah, he made me yeah. uh, the uh, oni. It's the oh, name yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah, out of a. I ordered a big. Uh, well, when you get to Dama steel if you custom order. You have to buy uh, a meter length. So I ordered a, a meter of uh, the. Pattern that's called Moonin, and I sawed off ten inches of that, sent it to him, and he made me that, and we we did a swap. Oh yeah, yeah. He's, a, he's a
3: great maker.
1: Yeah, you guys have a very similar style.
2: Super cool guy too. You guys should have him on the podcast. So he yeah, has a background art. Like mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah, super super cool lines. Everybody no. kind of vibes on the same wavelength. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, he
2: definitely cares about what he's doing. It shows.
1: Like what you're working on what's the future looking like any shows that might happen towards the end of the year
2: that's something i really need to get into i want to go to uh to blade in atlanta this year it's been put off till august right
3: yeah uh-huh. yep. if yeah. it happens i mean who knows? i
2: think i think if i end up going i'll just go as a spectator i really just want to meet all the people who i know virtually and just, you know, to gather inspiration by looking at people's work because there's so many talented makers out there. It must be overwhelming to be around thousands of of incredible knives like that.
0: It's a yeah, real trip. It, it's, it, a, it's a fun it, it, weekend. It, it, oh. either,
1: it either humbles you, makes, it makes you feel like you don't know what you're doing, or it makes you realize you're not charging enough.
2: Ah, those, are a bit the, of those
1: are usually the three things that you, you walk out of that room with. It's like... Wow, these guys are doing this for less than I am. I can't believe that. Like, I should just quit. And then, and you walk, you walk two tables down. You are like, this guy's doing this, this for this much. Wow, I should be charging uh-huh. more. Hmm. Or usually, everyone comes by and like they like your work. They don't like your work, and then you leave, and then you, you kind of humbles you. It, it's, a lot, it's a lot going on in that show to where it's like you, you could walk around and feel completely differently about your career.
2: And there is probably a lot of snobbery in the folder
1: world, huh? Yeah. A, yes. I think that's in every community. That, that just hu- yeah. That's just just human behavior, essentially.
2: Yeah, I haven't really experienced anything negative yet, and so far my experience has been 100% positive. Mm. You,
1: you got a maker, or it doesn't matter what, if it's, a knife, if it's a knife or a spoon or whatever it is, you tell him <laughs> his shit don't stink and he makes the best product ever, he's eventually going to think his shit don't stink and he makes the best product ever.
2: Yeah. Yeah, if someone tells you you're awesome a million times, you're going to start believing it. I think, you know, I think humility is definitely a virtue.
0: Yeah. you got it's to true. stay humble.
3: You can't get Must. the
2: ego tripping. Yeah, it's not cool. Not cool. I think your work would suffer if you ever got to that point. Right. Rest, resting on your laurels or believing
3: believing the hype. And once you start getting comfortable, it's not good. Yeah. Yeah. could be on your toes
2: therapeutic discomfort like to stay there
0: yeah, it's important to keep continue evolving you know you always want to sort of bring bring the freshness to the table
2: absolutely that's where the psychedelics come in right that's
0: exactly absolutely. right
1: yep. Break Speaking the of,
2: yeah i need to go on a camping trip and <laughs> do the all-inclusive trip
1: well, that was my plan. And then I was like, ah, it might not be a good idea to do that during COVID and start spiraling.
2: Yeah, when you think it's not a good idea, that's oftentimes that's the, the best, best time to do it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So you start spiraling.
1: You, you start spiraling. It's like, uh, you start looking around. There's like people without masks around you. Yeah, we go out into the woods where there's no one around. Uh,
2: that's yeah, the best yeah, place. It always woods.
1: Everywhere here where you think there's no people is where the people are because they, they think <laughs> no one else is there as well.
2: It's a conspiracy. They're following you.
1: I went fishing last week to a spot where I know no one's usually ever at because it's kind of a pain in the ass to get to. And it was packed. I was like, this has never happened before because everyone that kind of knows that spot that really goes there is like, oh, no one's there. I'm going to go there. And everyone was fucking there that day.
2: Yeah, the more difficult a place is to get to, the better time you're probably going to have anyway. So just go where no one wants to go or no one can go. Maybe
1: just get lost. You, were, you pretty much described my house.
2: Yeah, getting lost. No one
1: not to go here and no old can't go here.
2: <laughs> right on.
1: So on that, so on that note, I'm going to start signing off. Um, So Nick Chirpin of NCC Knives. You can find me at nccknives.com or nccknives on Instagram.
3: Elijah Isham, uh, Isham Blade Works. You can find me on Instagram at Isham Bloodworks.
0: And this is Jeremiah Burbank. Um you can find me at my day job, PVK Vegas on Instagram. Uh this has been another awesome episode of Bladeology. Dave, I want to thank you so much for coming on and taking time out of your day to to come hang out with us, man.
2: Absolutely, it's been an honor. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, where where can people find you? <laughs>
2: um you could find me on instagram at vasana blade works um i don't really have a facebook uh presence oh yeah
0: killer well we will we will definitely link that and like i said thanks so much man yeah it's been an honor have a good night right on and uh-huh. i swear to god I was, I was gone for a week was it like
2: really visually intense
1: yeah i had a whole like i, I thought i was a college professor like i thought i was going in college and like a college professor like i had a whole different like kind of makes you wonder about on. like
2: parallel universes or parallel realities if you're able to slip into something like that and have a real vivid experience of another another life and it's something you've never experienced or never heard of, yet you are experiencing it.
3: sub
1: But the stronger ones, the, the, that ideal fades like you could only picture it for like a quick moment yeah. after. Yeah, it's but like, like a a a dream. two days later, it's like you lost 95% of what happened.
3: Mm-hmm. You got to write it yeah. down.
2: Let's all do bong hits of salvia right now. You gotta remember
3: your pen. Don't forget your pen.
2: But, yeah, in order for DMT to be orally active, uh, you have to uh, do a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And the ayahuasca vine is actually that. It's it's called Banisteriopsis Mm -hmm. capi. So it's.
3: Mm -hmm. Apparently, yeah, it's taken that way. I guess you like it's like a sword build instead of like the visuals are are totally different.
2: I mean, I understand that mm-hmm. it's the same compound, but the experience is very different. I would equate it to like a a, um, like a mushroom trip and in duration and intensity
3: and whatnot. Have you watched uh, uh, The Spirit Molecule, yes. the documentary? Yeah, I read that book no. a long time ago, yeah.
2: Straussman's book.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's good stuff.
2: Yeah, it's not, it's not, if you're not into it, the, the read, it reads like a a, a scientific text
3: i oh, know it was hard to, to read that mm-hmm. like but i kind of felt i needed to to understand it so
2: yeah if you're fascinated with the topic it's it's worth the read for sure um terence mckenna's mm-hmm. books are really good too uh the food of the gods oh, yeah. true hallucinations uh the archaic revival those are really really good books
3: yeah i haven't read all of those mm-hmm. i need to
2: yeah what a fascinating guy that them. guy was he was brilliant mckenna yes
3: mm-hmm. yeah i named a knife after him actually
2: yeah which one
3: mm-hmm the McKenna. oh okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah